you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night, by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come. Let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Good to be back behind the Music Stand Church. I've had uh, a couple of weeks out. Uh, big thanks to Pat for stepping into my place when little Aria had COVID. She's all good uh, now, and miraculously, the three-year-old did not spread it, uh, even though I was up in her grill brushing her teeth and all those kinds of things. Uh, and we are here and here to dive back in to rebuild uh, in our series in Ezra and Nehemiah. Before we get into it, just want to echo uh, Luke's encouragement uh, the last couple of weeks, we've been doing this uh, encouragement to you for the join us in, in prayer and fasting. Whatever your participation in that, uh, we'd love for you to have come along tonight uh, to our prayer night at City on Hill HQ just down the road in Mount Waverley. Uh, we want to commit our plans to the Lord. And as part of this Build the City campaign, I want you to know that next week, we're going to be taking time in our service to, to survey you 
to hear your voice on what opportunities you might see as something that we should jump on for the sake of uh, Jesus' mission in the east and the southeast of Melbourne. Uh, so we're going to ask you a few questions of how you see our church particularly being able to contribute to uh, the community and reach people for Jesus. Uh, and so I wanted you to know so that you can think about uh, those questions going forward. The questions are at the front of the Build the City uh, devotional guide, uh, which if you don't have one, you can find one at the Connect desk on your way out. Well, today we come to this next installment in the book of Nehemiah. I'm going to pray that God would speak to us through these words and uh, help them land in our hearts. So let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank you that your word is living and active. We thank you that it is sharper than a two-edged sword. And we do pray that it would be sharp today for us, that you would uh, do surgery on us, implant in us the things that, that we need to become more like Jesus, the things that we need to trust in Jesus all the more, more wholeheartedly. And Lord, we pray that toward that end, you would make Jesus look big and bold and beautiful to us today, that our hearts would be warm toward him and that you might help us leave this place more committed to him and more grateful for all that you have done for us in the gospel. And so be with us now, we pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, during the week, uh, Jules and I had a rare opportunity to watch a movie together. Uh, we tuned into, uh, or we kind of scanned all these subscription services that you have, and there are many and varied unappealing options on those subscription services. But we decided on one, uh, a movie called Free Guy. Has anybody seen Free Guy starring the inevitable Ryan Reynolds? Uh, this is a movie about Guy, who is Ryan Reynolds, who is a non-playing character in a video game, only he doesn't know it yet. And for those who don't know, a non-playing character is a character in a game who isn't controlled by a player. They are like uh, an extra in a movie. They are just there in the background. They only say the things that they've been programmed to say in the code, just there to fill out the scene. And so Guy, Ryan Reynolds... Uh, he is meant to do what non-playing characters do. Stick to the script, stick to the same movements. The designers of the game have baked all this into the code of the game. And so day after day, he does exactly that. He wakes up, he wakes up happy, he gets on his blue shirt, he says the same lines, he happily goes through the, the chaos of the video game being played around him. Until one day, seemingly, he wakes up. And suddenly, he wants to say different words and wear a different shirt and order a different coffee. And slowly, Guy breaks the script and he breaks out of the mold that the code has created for him to no longer be an ordinary, non-playing character, but rather he starts to feel emotion and agency and a sense of purpose and conviction. And the idea of a non-playing character goes well beyond this particular movie. In fact, this particular movie is probably picking up uh, of where it's played out in our culture because it has become somewhat of an insult on the internet to describe someone who seemingly can't form their own opinions or ideas as a non-playing character. Uh, there is a, a meme or a picture that describes uh, what a non-playing character is meant to look like. This, this, this kind of guy is, is NPC Wojak. Uh, they do not contribute to the world. They just follow the world. And they follow whatever script the world paints for them and whatever their tribe wants them to think and do. 
Well, today we come to an episode in Nehemiah that might just challenge us about whether we are a non-playing character in the kingdom of God. And it's a needed challenge because in our own day, particularly in our part of the world, at this time in world history, we live in a day where having a bold and clear vision for one's life, well, they're seemingly harder and harder to come by. I tuned into an online conference recently and was able to uh, catch a session by uh, the professor of philosophy at Boston College, Peter Kreeft, and he talked about the decline of civilization. And he shared these consistent results of a group by the name of the, the Global Happiness Project. They every year rank the happiness levels of all the countries around the world. And it's interesting that every single year, the top five are always in Scandinavia, and the bottom five are always in sub-Saharan Africa. And he shared that the reason that is, is because it's kind of baked into how they measure happiness, because happiness by this uh, team is, is measured through wealth and comfort. And so naturally, the Scandinavians are the highest and the sub-Saharan Africans are the lowest. But in reality, Kreef said that if we could swap out taps for some more obvious barometers of happiness, we might get different results. And so he said, well, what if we swap it out for, for smiles to indicate happiness and suicides to indicate a lack of happiness? And if you judge it by smiles and suicides, actually the results are the exact opposite. That there are more smiles in sub-Saharan Africa and there are far more suicides in Scandinavia. And he suggested that the reason for this was that our comfort and progress and opulence has instead created in us a, a meaninglessness, a purposelessness, a dissatisfaction, and a breakdown. That essentially our comfort can lull us into becoming non-playing characters. And that it has disastrous effects upon a society when, when a lot of us together become non-playing characters and tap out of an active, purposeful life. And so today in Nehemiah, we're going to see a man, Nehemiah, a man of conviction, fully convinced of the purpose of his life and the contribution that he himself is called to make for God and his kingdom. And so we're going to jump into this episode and we're going to see that actually Nehemiah's own purpose intersects with your purpose. My purpose, our purpose, our, uh, the, the, why we are here today. That there is something in this passage for us and for our world that, that being safe and comfortable and prosperous and uh, we might be tempted to become non-playing characters, we're going to be challenged today. We're going to be challenged today. Now, by way of uh, context, last week we met Nehemiah, the man. We shifted from Ezra to Nehemiah. We met him as the cupbearer to the king uh, and we met him in the midst of his lament over the state of Jerusalem, God's city, God's place. The year is 445 BC and Jerusalem's walls remained uh, crumbled in ruins. And Nehemiah heard this. And so he prayed that God would grant him favor as he came before the king to ask for the king's help to go back and restore Jerusalem. And then miraculously, we're told, because of the good hand of the Lord, his God was upon him, Nehemiah was indeed granted that favor as he went before the king. And so the king let him return to Jerusalem to rebuild its ruins. And so we catch up now in Nehemiah chapter 2 with Nehemiah strolling or trotting 
on his donkey or horse back toward Jerusalem. And he does it with a bit of pomp and a bit of protection as he's surrounded by the king's escort. So we're going to first start talking about Jerusalem lying in ruins. Uh, Read with me verse 9 of chapter 2. It says, Then I, and so we know Nehemiah's writing, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. And so Nehemiah's returning now, and he's returning with the stamp of approval of the king. He's got the king's escort with him. His authority goes with him. And yet we immediately see that not everybody is happy about it. Verse 10. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. And so immediately there is naysayers, and they are naysaying for no other reason than that somebody cares about the people of Israel. And so they're even saying the quiet part out loud. You're meant to put on a front of kindness and charity here, but they aren't even doing that. They are publicly upset, not hiding their motives. They just simply do not want Israel to flourish. But their negativity is matched by Nehemiah's optimism and his purpose and calling and conviction, because you read on in verse 11 and 12. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I rose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. And so here is Nehemiah, a man fully convinced. God himself has put it in deep into the recesses of his heart that he is going to help the people of Israel. God has given him this supernatural sense of conviction, a vision for what he is called to do with his life. And it relates relates specifically to the rebuilding of the walls around Jerusalem. And so we read that Nehemiah gets up late at night and he takes a few trusted people with him and he rides on his horse or his donkey all around the outskirts of the city, all around the wall, observing What's happened to this place? Observing the ruins, observing the crumbled rocks and bricks. Then he concludes in verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. It's interesting to, to note Nehemiah's words here, because his choice of words reveal what he thinks is the main problem here. The walls are down and its gates are burned. And so naturally, this is a vulnerable situation for Jerusalem to be in. But it's not just safety or security that Nehemiah is worried about. He sees this as an honor-shame issue. See, last week, one of his brothers came to him and told him about Jerusalem and said that Jerusalem lies in great shame. Now, this week, Nehemiah's agreeing and saying that Jerusalem is suffering derision. And so sure, Nehemiah wants the city to be safe and secure from its enemies or potential attackers. But more than that, he especially wants to restore Jerusalem to the glory befitting its place in God's purposes. For now, Jerusalem lies in shame. And you get the sense as Nehemiah trotted around the walls here of Jerusalem 
that his stomach was just turning with great shame over what had come of God's city, God's place. It was not meant to be this way. And so he has a holy discontent about himself. And we find here a connection between his time and ours. Pat shared last week how we're not meant to read Nehemiah and see ourselves as kind of in Nehemiah's shoes. Rather, we should see ourselves in the shoes of the city. Crumbled walls, gates, burned, ruins. We ourselves are a hapless people, a helpless people, a broken city needing restoration. We're like that. Our church is like that. The church is like that. You know, we might, like Nehemiah, do a, do a, do a tour around the, God's church in the world. And we'd see many ways that it lies in shame. We hear again and again of, of this leadership scandal and that leadership scandal, of churches splitting, division, disagreement, the people of the gospel of grace not sharing the good news to one another, let alone the world, abuse epidemics. Seemingly every single new census shows us that we have a, a smaller sense of the cultural capital in Australia. There's a sense of powerlessness and fragility. And yet, just like these ruins that Nehemiah is observing. When we look to God's word, we read of the remarkable glory of God's church. Jesus, as he preached the Sermon on the Mount, this is where we get our name, told the church, you are a city on a hill. You're going to be a place of light and love, of, of refuge, security. In 1 Timothy, we're called the, the pillar and the buttress of the truth. We, we harbor, we protect the truth. In 1 Peter, we read earlier in there that we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, a chosen race. Elsewhere in the Bible, we read that we are God's field, God's building, God's temple, the body and the bride of Christ. And so the church should be a place where life and love and forgiveness and joy and celebration and godly lament and uh, grace to one another, reconciliation, this beautiful moral attributes we so long to see embodied in the world should be embodied in the church. We are stewards of the good news, the best news, the only news in all the world. And we are God's plan A for how he is going to disrupt and interrupt and enter into this world, that he might call people to the only hope that we have in Jesus. And so the church is beautiful. The church is meaningful. The church is glorious. Pastor and author John Stott, he says, the church lies at the very center of the eternal purposes of God. It is not a divine afterthought. It is not an accident of history. His purpose conceived in eternity past is not just to save isolated individuals and so perpetuate our loneliness, but rather to build his church, to call out of the world a people for his own glory. So what I hope this passage might stir in us is something that, that God was stirring in the heart of Nehemiah. 
I hope that God might put into our hearts a conviction, passion, a desire to love and steward and rebuild God's church. We need a God-given conviction that the church might shine with the glory befitting its place in God's purposes in the world. And so the challenge for us is to see our purposes as very similar to Nehemiah's purpose way back when. We're called to build the church, restore the church, rebuild his people. Like him, we, we see the reality of where we are now, and yet we must resolve to pursue God's vision of who we will be in him as we play our part in making it better. Let's see what Nehemiah does next. Let's talk about rebuilding and repairing. So Nehemiah sees all this and he must take action. Verse 18, he says, And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthen their hands for the good work. And so the people get to work. And we won't have time to read all of chapter 3, but we are taking in what chapter 3 tells us today as well. And you can look at that in your own time. But even if now on your phone or in your Bible, you you cast your eyes just over chapter 3, you'll see that it's just a a list of, of names and where they contributed along the wall. The high priests and the priests, they, they take the lead. They put on their overalls and they start the work by building the sheep gate. And next to them, another group of people start to build. And next to them, others build and so on. And it goes all the way around the walls of Jerusalem. And so what chapter 3 is, is really a role of honor of all the people that played a part in rebuilding this wall. And there's some notable elements there that I'll just point out for a moment. In, in chapter 3, verse 5, we read about the Tekoites. They were repairing the wall, but we're told their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. And so evidently, even in amongst the people, there were some who just weren't going to do the dirty work. They would not bow the knee and get messy for the sake of their Lord. They wouldn't pick up a brick and get to work. It was apparently below them. And yet in contrast to them, in verse 9, 12, 15, and 19, we read about some other people of honor, some rulers, that they, no questions asked, got in there and started contributing, happy to stoop and to play a part. And so the summary of it all is that what we see here is that we get a clear picture of of all kinds of people playing their part in rebuilding and repairing the walls and the gates here in Jerusalem. We see men and women, sons and daughters, priests and rulers, white collar and blue collar. And then if we read all this, we might wonder, and Luke was telling me this morning, gee, what's Nick going to do with this? We might might read this passage of Scripture and think, what's in it for me? Where, 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 Where is this helpful for my life? But if we keep that thought and walk on through to the New Testament, we see again that there's actually quite a... Uh, interesting connection between what they were doing and what God himself calls us to do. Because we read in the New Testament that you and I actually have a very important responsibility. And to help that responsibility along, we have been gifted, empowered to contribute to the life of the church, to the rebuilding, restoration, repairing of God's church. 
Hear this from the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul writes, he says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we're all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. And so here's the big idea. We're all different. All of us come from different backgrounds, ethnicities, traditions, professions, educations, whatever. Regardless, God wants you to pick up a brick and get to the work of building his church in the world. One of the ways that we know that he wants that is that he tells us that he's gifted us for it. He's gifted us for it. And that means that that you have gifts that I don't. And the person next to you has gifts that you don't. And we could go all around the room and, and we would all be wired in different ways and gifted in different ways, but together we make a body. One part an arm, one part an eye, one part an ear, but together we make a body that works to build up God's church. Now this past week you will have seen that it was the celebration of the Platinum Jubilee of the Queen. Uh, I don't get so much into the, the royal uh, processional stuff, but the Queen is just super impressive, is, is she not? Like, I would take Michael Jordan over LeBron James, but the Queen is the real goat uh, in the world. She is just incredible. The Queen became the Queen before my dad was even born. He is retiring this year. She's still going. It's crazy. But I was struck when I saw that, that C.S. Lewis himself, he was around during the Queen's coronation, and he reflected on the coronation of the Queen. I was struck by what he said. He said this back in 1952. He said, you know, over here, people did not get that fairy tale feeling about the coronation. What impressed most of us was the fact that we saw that the Queen herself appeared to be quite overwhelmed by the sacramental side of it. Hence, in the spectators, a feeling of awe, pity, pathos, mystery. The pressing of that huge, heavy crown on that small, young head becomes a sort of symbol of the situation of humanity itself. Humanity called by God to be his vice-regent and high priest on earth, yet feeling so inadequate. As if he said, in my love, I shall lay upon the dust that you are, glories and dangers and responsibilities beyond your understanding. Do you see what I mean? He says, one has missed the whole point unless one feels that we have all been crowned and that coronation is somehow, if splendid, a tragic splendor. This is what this story and what the New Testament bears out. It shows us that that we've been given this tremendous responsibility to stewarding the good news of Jesus in the earth, the good news of Jesus in your home, the good news of Jesus in your school, the good news of Jesus in your workplace. We've been given this responsibility, especially in the context of our community, building this local church. If you call this church home, and part of your responsibility is to build this local church. And so we've been given this as a, a privilege and as a responsibility. And so the question is, will we stoop? Will we stoop to the glory of rebuilding God's church? Now, there's lots of things that, that need to be done in the life of a church that, that don't at all seem glorious. 
Um, we can get very practical about uh, the ways there are, there are needs and, and opportunities and all those sorts of things. Uh, last couple of weeks ago, I shared a meme that I found with, with a few guys where uh, if a guy is looking for a tattoo that shows that he's a, he's a godly man who loves to serve his church, what tattoo should he get? Stacking chairs. Stacking chairs. It's a good tattoo. Any gentleman, feel free to take it up and we'll see it next week. Uh, but this is what we see here, you know, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. There would have been sweat. There would have been sore backs. There would have been injuries. There was no kind of safe work officer coming around to check whether OHS was being followed or anything like that. I mean, some people even had to rebuild the dung gate. You didn't want that job. But they all contributed in their own way. And it's that way with the church as well. You know, putting out chairs is, is, is not a great, glorious responsibility. And yet, if we didn't do it, we would not be right now sitting under the word of God. We would not be able to welcome newcomers. And so big props to those who do. Those chairs you're sitting on, they were put out this morning by somebody. And they'll be put back later today. So the church itself, we can do with this rebuilding, replanting, re-strengthening work as well. It will be messy, but you and me, we are God's appointed strategy to do it. There is no one else. God has us here for this purpose. He's empowered us to do it. So let's talk about, finally, uh, that Jesus has a wonderful plan for your life. You know, we repeat a lot whenever we're walking through books of the Bible. If you're new to our church, you should know that, that kind of this, is, this is kind of how we do uh, church on Sundays and that we take books of the Bible and we try to go through week by week. Uh, every now and then we'll have a thematic or a topical series, but the, the bread and butter of how we do ministry here, how we want to know Jesus and make Jesus known is by having God set the agenda by his word speaking to us how it is written. But we have to, because of that, uh, remind ourselves all the time about how to read the Bible well, especially when we're in the Old Testament. And there's a few ways that we could approach Old Testament passages like this. And the first is, uh, the good way to do it is through exegesis. Exegesis refers to drawing out of the text when giving consideration to the text itself, to the context of the time, to, to all those uh, kinds of things. You, you draw out from it, what was the author's intention when they originally wrote this? And then you get to, well, this is what God is trying to say. That's exegesis. But a bad way to do it is, is called eisegesis, which is instead of drawing out, it's, it's putting yourself in there, your own context, your own kind of understanding of certain words and all those kind of things. You, you kind of put your own meaning into the text. Well, a cousin of eisegesis we could call narsegesis. Narsegesis is where we read the Bible and we put ourselves at the center of the story. You know, we're reading Nehemiah. You and I are not Nehemiah. We were not Ezra. And whenever you read the Old Testament, you, know, you are not King David. You are not Abraham. You are not Moses. But yes, there are things that we can learn from all these people. We can learn from Nehemiah. There are ways that we should imitate him as his life is set forth to us as an example for us. And so we should heed from him the challenge to be ambitious and active contributors in building up God's church the book of Nehemiah is about more than that. Nehemiah is foreshadowing here the work of Jesus that he would come to do. Because much like how Nehemiah here has prayed and fasted and lamented over the state of Jerusalem, you might be familiar with an episode in the life of Jesus 
that when he had set in his heart, he'd set his face, the Gospel of Luke tells us, to go to Jerusalem. He set his face to go to Jerusalem because he knew that his mission involved, he was going to have to lay his life down in Jerusalem. But as he's on his way to Jerusalem, I mean, God had put into his heart to fulfill his mission there. He starts to weep. Jesus sees the city and he starts to weep. Now, Nehemiah was lamenting and weeping over the fact that the walls had turned to ruins. Jesus isn't lamenting or weeping over the walls being ruins, but rather that their faith had become ruins. He laments and weeps over the faithlessness and the hard-heartedness of Jerusalem in his day. And it's a hard-heartedness that instead of getting to the work of, of rebuilding it from where it was, rather it needs to be torn down further in judgment. And so Jesus comes to, to judge, but he does it so that he might be able to save. And so think about Jesus' response as he weeps over Jerusalem. The people of God. He doesn't scoff and scold Jerusalem because of their failure. Rather, he keeps on walking toward it. And he keeps on walking all the way in to Jerusalem where he'll meet that hard-heartedness face-to-face and he'll experience it in arrest, betrayal, being spat on and beaten and bruised and ultimately laying down his life on a cross in the very city that he was sent to save, judging him. Instead. But it was actually in that death that was the beginning of something new. It was actually in that death on the cross that would become the first building block in building a new city and in building a new people. Because earlier Jesus had promised, Hey, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And in Jesus laying down his life, We're told later in in Ephesians that he was loving the church, that he gave himself up for her, the church, you. He gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor. And so Jesus was doing exactly what what Nehemiah was, was trying to conjure up. Jesus fulfills the ministry of Nehemiah in his death. No longer building a city with bricks and mortar, but rather with his own blood. With the good news of his death and resurrection. And so Jesus is still at that work right now. He is rebuilding, he is restoring, he is repairing the church. And that's why you and I are here right now. Because we are part of that story. Our lives laid as rubble. Ruins on the ground. We've all turned aside and rejected Jesus. We've, we've run from God and lived life our own way. And so our lives lay broken rubble on the ground and, and Jesus chose to pick you up as a brick in his hand. We're told that we're living stones in his hand. And so Jesus picked you up and he put you in the, the eastern suburbs of Melbourne section of the wall of the kingdom that he was building. And then he picked me up and he put me next to you. And then he picked the person sitting next to you up and he put that brick next to you. And and he put all of us together here in this place in that same little section of the eastern suburbs of Melbourne section of the wall that he is building here, of his kingdom that he is building here in the world. He chose to save you. 
But even more than that, he, he chose to call you, to uh, give you a mission, to use you as a brick, to use us together as living stones, as bricks, to, to be in this part, in this time, in this place of the world, to serve him and his kingdom. So that means that Jesus has a wonderful plan for your life. You know, you, you do not need to go to the top of the Himalayas to work out what is the meaning of your life. It is very clear from the Bible. The meaning and the purpose of your life, why you exist, is to trust in Jesus and serve his kingdom. That is the reason why you are here. That is the reason why we're all little bitty specks on a rock that is hurtling around the universe. Jesus has a wonderful plan for your life. And so as we think about Nehemiah's vision and conviction for restoring Jerusalem, we need only see that only Jesus could accomplish it. Only Jesus could fulfill that vision, and he's doing it right now with you. So will you walk in the purposes and the calling of Christ? You exist to serve him. And all of us are invited, all of us are able, all of us are gifted, all of us are empowered, all of us are needed, and all of us are welcome. And so what is it that you're doing with your life? Are you living for why you were made? Are you walking in the essential purpose that God has placed upon you for which you were designed? Are you thinking about, prioritizing the very thing for which you were saved? And if you're here today and you're just checking out Christianity, I want you to know that the message of Jesus is that apart from him, nothing in your life will ever truly feel like it works. There will always be something off, something lacking, some great angst of purposelessness. But Jesus came to offer you life, life eternal and life abundant, a life forgiven of your sin and your rejection of him, a life adopted into his family, a life empowered for great service. And he secured that life, that forgiveness, that adoption, that empowerment. He secured it in his death and in his resurrection in your place. So don't buy into the lie that the Christian life is some kind of dull and boring life about swapping fun and pleasure for the difficulty of moral discipline and dull religiosity. In Lord of the Rings, J.R. Tolkien says about Samwise, he says, Sam was the only member of the party who had not been over the river before. He had a strange feeling as the slow gurgling stream slipped by that his old life lay behind in the mists. Dark adventure lay in front. And that is a picture of the Christian life, that, that it is a life of adventure, of finally coming to the purpose for which you've been made, of joining a king in building his kingdom. And if you are here and you are a Christian this morning, is this the life that you're leading? Is this the life that you're plotting, the life you're planning, your life that you're thinking about? Are you praying for opportunities to serve? Are you courageously stepping in when those opportunities do arise? Are you repenting and confessing and resolving to submit yourself to Jesus? Are you thinking about how to spend and be spent in the time that you have for the sake of this adventure that is the Christian life? We should think about these things. Let's pray for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for uh, your work in the world, that you love the world so much that you sent your only son, that you give us the opportunity to believe in him and there by him, not perish, but rather have eternal life. Lord, we pray right now for us here in this community. Lord, we pray that, that you would 
Help us see the, the vision that you have for your church and help us see what you've done to accomplish that vision in gifting us, empowering us, calling us into your family, into your kingdom. Lord, will we not ignore that, not minimize that, not buy in to seeing it as some uh, kind of plan B or second uh, rate purpose in life. Rather, may we see the glory of what you're doing and may we want to join you in it. And so come and give us this great conviction as Nehemiah had, this great sense of purpose that he had. Put it into our hearts that we might love your church as you love it, that we might serve your church as you have served it, that we might rebuild your church even as you rebuild it. Apart from you, we can do nothing. Unless you build the house, we labor in vain. And so may we just enjoy being a part of the good news people who enjoy you and your grace and get our hands messy together in rebuilding your church in the world. Bless us, I pray, in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.